Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of season two of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm interviewer and rakishly handsome gadabout Giles Goff. And I'm photographer and insurance nightmare Phil Coleman. <laughs> and during this time of societal disarray, we'll be trying to stave off the desire to declare Manchester an independent city-state by strapping <laughs> our film geek flight jackets on to analyse a matter of life and death. The 1946 film starring David Niven and Kim Hunter, directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. We'll be looking at the depictions of angels, what jobs we'll have in heaven, and exactly who would you sacrifice yourself for. Phil, what did you think of this film? So I only watched it for the first time today, just before mm. uh, we started. I, and first of all, I didn't realise that we would be reviewing a film from 1946, so I think currently oh, is the know? oldest film that we've, uh, we've reviewed. Yeah? I've got to say, for a film that is... Uh, from 1946, it's felt very much culturally and politically woke, for better of a term, for lack of a better term, kind of thing. How so? Mainly the bit near the end where it was talking about, I want a culture, I want a diverse, uh, a more diverse jury, and he was, and then yeah. he was just like. Oh, I'm an American, but also, but I, I used to be a Chinese national. I'm an American, but I used to be, I used to come from France, you know, and I'm just like... Yeah, considering that we think of World War II as being a particularly jingoistic time where everything was majorly in favour of, of Britain and everything we were doing, it seems to be not afraid to criticise Britain and its role that it's had with colonialism throughout Absolutely. the world. And I thought that was fascinating, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, apart from the fact that I didn't realise how much I really liked David David Niven as an mm. actor. I also really, what was his name now? The guy who played Reeves. I really liked him as an actor as well. I just, yeah. I, there's something about his presence on screen really drew me in. In general, though, I just loved it. I thought it was a really good example of cinema. The population of heaven was very diverse, wasn't it? There was uh, there yeah. was different different people in there and the rest of it. And again, much better than it than you would think it has any any right to be, frankly. You know, I mean, definitely, yeah, definitely. I've always known how important this film was, but I was kind of just surprised at how funny the script is right from the start before anything we got the narrator's the first line this is the universe big isn't it (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's got a great sense of humor to it considering that it's about you know life death and the universe it's yeah sort of i think it has to have that that element of well, the levity, I think. Yeah, it's, or, it's, it's amazing how much levity they managed to sort of squeeze into it there. The bit where, where the American pilots sort of turn up and said, this is heaven, yes, sir. Okay, and this is where we're meant to be, yes, sir. Are there any USO tours here? Uh, no, sir. Oh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, think that, I think if I remember correctly, the line is, cool, I'll stay. <laughs> Something like that. And the fact that they all just go and get given a Coca-Cola out of a machine straight away and they pop the I cap think, off. That's I brilliant. Think that's what you'd want, isn't it? You know? It's like, you, God, that, that was hard. That, you, that you, burning wreckage was dead hard. I really fancy an ice-cold Coca-Cola. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? You know, you've, you've gone through a traumatic death somewhere. You've just realised that you're dead that you're turning up in the in the afterlife listen there's a lot to take in it's okay sit down have a cold beverage you know <laughs> have a have a cold beverage sir we'll be with you as soon as possible <laughs> i always like to think that heaven has like intake counselors you know to help you adjust you know and i like the idea that they would just sit you down with a nice cup of tea first of all to help you get your bearings you know I, I, you, you know i'd want to i'd want to watch something like itv you know, <laughs> you switch off to like you know like in you know like in a hospital waiting room just yeah. love it It'd be brilliant I, mean, I, I feel yeah. better now 
I particularly liked how the disclaimer at the start said the the other world mentioned in this film was the was one that only exists in the minds of young airmen as they're about to die, and it was something to the effect of and resemblance to any other worlds was purely accidental. You know, it yeah, was I quite like, like that. I quite like that. It's like please don't assume anything bad of us. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Like don't be offended, guys. It's just a work of fiction. You know. Yeah. It, I like the way this film has its cake and eats it. You know, they take pains to show what someone psychologically would be going through and they they do the thing where the judge is also the main surgeon as well i spotted that and i was yeah. like just after the whole big court scene and i was just like ah, you know just like ah, see i didn't notice yeah. it before if you wanted to you could debate whether it's really happened or whether it's happened in his head or not i almost think it's not worth trying to debate it frankly i think it's more interesting you you take from it whatever you want to take from it you know what i mean yeah absolutely i completely agree i think it's good to have it open to interpretation yeah i like the the depiction of 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 heaven that they had it seemed delightfully modern and, and very different to what any one particular religion would choose you know um I also like the fact that there seem to be women in power in this in this version of heaven as well. Not exclusively or anything like that, but I thought that was really interesting. The, the equality was definitely noteworthy in, yeah. that, in, in that in that version of heaven or the afterlife or whatever it's possibly supposed what, to be. Whatever. It's not really yeah. it's, it's not really mentioned if it's any particular religion at all. It's yeah, just, well, it's, um... it's, I think it's only referred to as heaven, sort of like indirectly. I don't think anyone actually says hello, this is heaven. You know. So, <laughs> Hiya. Yeah. So, without further ado, let's hear Phil's facts. Right. So, um, A Master of Life and Death is a 1946 British fantasy romance film set in England during the Second World War. It tells the story of an RAF pilot who survives a thought-to-be-fatal accident only to wake up alive and have to appeal his case for life to the court of the afterlife. So, the huge escalator linking this world to the other world, called Operation Ethel by the firm of engineers who <laughs> who constructed it under the aegis of the London Passenger Transport Board, it uh, took three months to make mm. and cost £3,000 sterling back in 1946. Which is probably more than I've ever earned in my lifetime by now. But um, yeah, three thousand in nineteen forty-six, adjusted for inflation, that is one hundred twenty-six thousand five hundred eighty-eight pounds. Oh, maybe I've only just about earned about that much in my lifetime. <laughs> and Operation Ethel had one hundred and six steps, each twenty feet wide, and was driven by a twelve-horsepower engine. The full shot was completed by hanging miniatures. When you say hanging miniatures, what do you mean? It's basically like false perspective. They'll have Operation Ethel there, and they'll have mm-hmm. some miniatures in, further in the foreground to try and complete the, the illusion that it's going up and up and up and down and down and down, like it's going on forever, if that makes sense. I'm with you. It was during a visit to Hollywood in 1945 that director Michael Powell decided to cast the then-unknown Kim Hunter as June, the American servicewoman, largely upon the recommendation of Sir Alfred Hitchcock, who had done a series of screen tests of actors and actresses auditioning for parts in his upcoming production, Notorious, from 1946. Mm. The trouble was that in these screen tests, Hunter was not seen, but rather was heard off camera, feeding lines and cues to the actors Hitchcock was actually screen testing. But Hitchcock assured Powell that he would arrange a face-to-face with Hunter and her agent so that he could see for himself that she fit the requirements of the all-American girl that Powell had envisioned opposite David Niven. And upon uh, first encountering Hunter, Powell agreed with Hitchcock that she indeed was the perfect choice for the role. So he didn't even see her, and Hitchcock was just like, look, mate, (laughs) this defo... Defo the one, lad. You know what I mean? <laughs> People might recognise Conductor 71 as being death. 
He collects the dead, plays chess as death is supposed to, and instead of a scythe, the Conductor 71 has a glass crook. Conductor 71 is the Frenchman, isn't he? He's the French aristocrat who basically missed him because he was in thick fog. Yeah. I lost my head. (laughs) (laughs) I lost my head. (laughs) I've got to say, I really, really enjoyed his character. Mm. Like, I thought I'd find him really annoying when I first came on screen, but I I, I thought it was like, he's got enough self-awareness about him, about being a bit of a ridiculous character that it works. I quite like there's, it. There's a part of me that just likes the, this sound terrible, that likes the cheapness of it, you know? The way they show a, a French aristocrat working for the afterlife and what happened to him, and he's just wearing a scarf, you know? Yeah. And he looks a little bit uncomfortable at times. That's a, If you were doing an Amdram production of this, that's exactly what you'd do. You'd need something that just goes, he is French AF. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, straight away. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, apart from beret, baguette, striped t-shirt, garlic you know like yeah definitely so for the ping pong scene kim hunter and roger livesey that's the name of the actor i couldn't remember Mm -hmm. who played reeves were trained by alan brooke the british champion who played many games with international champion victor barner during a visit to denim studios the champ the two champions played a couple of games before an admiring audience of artists and technicians for luck hunter borrowed one of brooke's tournament paddles for her movie game it's quite nice it's quite nice richard attenborough who played an english pilot He has has only one line and he goes, it's heaven, isn't it? (laughs) And I didn't realise it was him at first, but then I I sort of found that out and was like, it's him. He literally is just a English pilot who turns up and just goes, oh, it's it's not L, is it? You know, (laughs) that's good. The back cloth of the high court scene suggesting tiers of seats stretching into infinity measured Mm. 350 feet long and 40 feet high. Although eight back cloths of similar large dimensions were used in other world scenes and 29 elaborate sets were constructed. In all of these vast scenes, 5,375 extras were used, including real Air Force crews, Red Cross nurses and WAACs. That's awesome. Can you imagine having to pay them? <laughs> well, yeah, but think about this for a sec, okay? So if you bring in, um, if you bring in serving Air Force uh, people or, or what was uh, or nurses or anything uh, like Red that, Red Cross nurses and WAACs. If you get these guys as extras in in for your thing, and you tell them to turn up in full uniform then you don't have to worry about costume department, do you? That's true, actually. You just tell them to turn up in the uniform that you're already wearing, yeah. give, them, give, them, give them a couple of sandwiches and a couple of quid and a pat on the back, and then you're done, aren't you? <laughs> it's, a, it's a contemporary thing. And for, for those kind of sizes or those kind of figures, it's not like you'd necessarily have to go out and recruit individ- extras individually. Mm. And also, this is done with the Ministry of Information, isn't it? I'm not sure, actually. Right, OK. So the Ministry of Information was basically like the British sort of propaganda department, effectively. You know? Oh yeah, it, it's such a funny one because you know we have this massive metaphysical question about love versus eternity, and then there's just a bit where two guys are like America, yay, and the the English <laughs> guy's going, well, I think you'll find that Britain's not that bad, really. I mean, seriously, have you ever tried tea? <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit like the filmmakers kind of went on a bit of a side quest. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, got... it, it feels like a subplot unto itself without it actually being a subplot. You know? Do you remember there's a scene? Right before David Niven's character meets the the doctor, where mm. they're in this sort of like the mess where they're where they're yeah. stationed, 
and the servicemen are rehearsing a Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh yeah, yeah, I did see. I saw that because the woman points yeah. out that they spelt Shakespeare wrong. On the yeah, poster. and the response yeah, yeah. is, "What are you, his agent?" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I liked that line. So Mid- Midsummer Night's Dream is always it's the kind of Shakespeare you show to kids because it's quite low stakes and yeah. it's it's quite it's quite fun. And you've got things happening on multiple levels. You've got the fairies, you've got the uh, the mechanicals, and you've got the lovers and all the rest of it. In a similar way, we've got the judge, we've got people right high up on top, we've got the the lovers, Peter and June, and then you've got all these other supernatural characters like Conductor 71, who kind of has this slightly puckish quality to him. It looks <laughs> like there's one point where he's kind of trying to trick Peter to come to, to heaven. Yeah, and... that bit when he's on the stairs and he's just there going like, doing like, what about Plato? What about yeah. Socrates? Abraham Lincoln was a nice guy. You know, he's just like, no, no, no. (laughs) Yeah. So, according to Ben Mankiewicz of Turner Classic Movies, this movie's production was delayed nine months due to the scarcity of technical film and equipment at the time, which makes Conductor 71's remark upon leaving the black and white heaven somewhat of an inside joke, where he he says um, something like, oh, they're very scarce of Technicolor up there, (laughs) something like that, which I think is absolutely wonderful because it's so self-aware. It's a delightful kind of little wink to the... uh to the audience isn't it I can't say that this was any with any kind of certainty that it's fact but I believe that line was improvised by the oh, actor really? playing Conductor 71 as well and they just went we'll keep that one in I like so, that uh, a great many of the famous men whose statues are on the massive stairway have a common trait they were believed to have neurological disorders when this film was made this is a subtle nod to Peter's medical condition oh really hmm. that's brilliant I feel like the Conductor 71 was basically going go for that guy because he's as nuts as you are <laughs> 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 something like that at least anyway did you hear that they, they, they got someone special to uh, to come in and advise them on the the sort of depiction of the of the cosmos. I didn't know that actually. No, they I got Arthur C. Clarke. The uh, I think. Oh the, yeah. The, <laughs> so just someone, someone just you know lesser known. Just not some the, guy. Who was... some, I looked up at night once. I'll I'll advise you. You know, just <laughs> yeah. That's that's amazing. That is so cool that they got him on there. That's amazing. Yeah, definitely. So it, this sort of ties in with one of the other ones as well. Uh, so RAF survivors played themselves in the Otherworld's High Court, who also played themselves in the country house base where they were stationed. And this is my favourite bit. They mm-hmm. donated their earnings to the Red Cross, which is brilliant. Yeah, that <laughs> is awesome. That is now me, all done. Thank you for those, Phil. They really made me smile. This week we have a particularly special guest, and it is quite the coup that we've been able to get him. This guy literally wrote the book on a matter of life and death. I'll let him introduce himself. Hello, my name's Andrew Moore, and I've got the unusual job title Reader and Cinema Studies at Manchester Metropolitan University. I've had a lifelong interest in Paul and Pressburger and even spent five long years doing my PhD on them back in the 90s. Andrew, thank you so much. It is an absolute honour to have you on the podcast today. Let's get straight into it. For the uninitiated, who are Powell and Pressburger and why are they so significant to British film? They're a team of British filmmakers who worked together from 1939 through primarily till the late 50s, although a few projects after that. Michael Powell, very much a kind of English country gent upbringing. Emmerich Pressburger, a Hungarian emigre who arrived in Britain in the late 30s of a Jewish extraction, although he didn't primarily leave uh, Hungary and then Berlin because of the rise of the Third Reich. It was more for career reasons, but he did lose a lot of his family uh, in the Holocaust. 
and unusually had this shared credit of written, produced and directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger throughout their partnership. Uh, so very much uh, hard to kind of pull apart their individual identity. Yeah, you've got to have a very, a very strong connection to be able to share those credits together, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, effectively, Michael Powell was the director and Emmerich Pressburger was the writer. Although, mm-hmm. if you look at the archives, they very much shared the script writing. Uh, the original treatments and storylines would come from Emmerich. Uh, but Emmerich wasn't above kind of making suggestions about how the film should look. Um, yeah. But on, on the set and on location, it was Michael who was the, the director. Fantastic. And when it comes to a matter of life and death, what can you tell us about the particular circumstances that led to it being commissioned? Maybe commissioned is too strong a word, but they had a very good lunch with Jack Beddington, who was the head of the Ministry of Information. <laughs> and he strongly suggested, this was in 1944, that a film that tried to cement Anglo-American relations would be particularly useful. One of the reasons for this was 1944 was when an awful lot of American soldiers and Air Force were arriving in Britain prior to the big push onto the continent. There was a lot of cultural tension around yeah. the guys being in England, things like that. But it was also looking forward to the post-war period and what that relationship would look like with America. So Bennington suggested a film like this would be useful and Emmerich went away and started working on a film about a relationship between a British airman and an American girl that would deal with post-war period. And it's odd because it's it's quite antagonistic in some parts of, of uh, Anglo-American relations, isn't it? Where you've got the prosecutor in, let's call it heaven for want of a better phrase, seems to be pointing out all the things that Britain have done wrong and all the, all the people that have got a gripe with them over the years. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's a kind of treatise against bigotry in that mm. uh, Farlan, the American, is, is set up as a, a nationalistic bigot who hates the British. Even at the time, some of the critics were quite anxious about the way in which there's this, the film still lets a bit of a cloud hover over ideas of British colonialism, mm. the British Empire and its its record treatment of racial minorities. So the film's international, but it, it does touch on some fairly awkward colonial and post-colonial yeah. aspects that would, would be worrying in the, in the 40s particularly. Because something like that, you'd expect it to be thoroughly jingoistic, but if nothing else, the representation purely of, of all the different soldiers that you see on screen is, is something else. In, in terms of the showing off people you wouldn't expect to see. I mean, I guess here it's the American who's set up as the, as the bigot and an American who has to change his mind because he's presented with the life and experience of, a, of a, an uncommonly good British airman. Yeah. Powell and Pressburg had, hadn't shied away from controversy in the past because they'd made a life and death of Colonel Blimp in the early yeah. 40s in which military intelligence is shown to be a contradiction in terms of <laughs> the British Army. And Churchill famously tried to ban that film. Oh, really? Uh, surprise, surprise, in 1942, even Churchill doesn't have the power to ban a film. He interpreted it as a satire on his public school and imperial background, as if it was mocking his tradition of, of imperial British military adventure. I think it's a more complicated film than that. So some of that controversy does carry through to A Matter of Life and Death. I think one of the strange things about it is it's conceived in 44, A Matter of Life and Death, uh, because it doesn't come out until late 1946. Yeah. It's actually strange for a film that's dealing very much with the war to come out shortly after the end. You'd think the last thing anybody wants to see in 1946 is a film that harks back to those 
cold six years of the early 40s. So in some ways it's been seen as a kind of transitional film that's kind of looking forward to a post-war period or maybe a film that's dealing with the trauma of a recent wartime or something mm. like that. Um, it kind of fits into that post-1945. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, such an unusual one. Talking about unusual, the one thing that's been on my mind is what can you tell us about the use of colour in this film? The one thing which Powell stood endlessly in his anecdotage and always kind of just in repeating stories about his life. And he repeatedly said that when he first spoke to Jack Cardiff, about this idea of having some of the film in monochrome and some in colour, that heaven would obviously be in colour. And Jack Carter said, no, 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 Michael, you understand nothing. You understand <laughs> nothing, Michael. Everyone will expect us to put heaven in technicolour. So mm. opposite. Uh, and then actually when they thought it through, they kind of, they, they start to associate vibrant technicolour with vitality and with life and with mm. earthiness and with a sensuality. Uh, and in their later films, they use Technicolor in a highly symbolic, but really very, very sensual kind of way. Um, and apparently th th they made a kind of joke about, about the, the black and white should look pearly, so it'll be like the pearly gates. Oh, right. Kind of heaven. Um, so they use Technicolor, but, it, but then they, 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 they don't put the, the, the heaven stock through its dying process, so it's got this kind of pearly grey luster to it. Uh, but primarily they do it because it's counterintuitive and it's going to surprise people. Just being flipping contrary in some cases then. Kind of, yes. But also it, it's interesting because you kind of, in some ways, you'd think that when colour stock comes in in the late 30s, it's going to be associated more with realism because mm -hmm. you see the world in yeah. colour. But actually Technicolor was never used for realistic drama. Realistic mm. films tended to be in black and white. Colour was, was for musicals or it was for historical epics, or it was for prestigious literary adaptations, or for fantasy films, or animation, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so here, making the Earth technical, I really is a kind of investment in the here and now, I guess. Yeah, that things are going on on Earth, and that, that, that we've got plays happening, we've got people sort of going about their daily lives, and that sense of vitality, whereas Heaven seemed to be sort of sitting around discussing legal matters at length. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we're, we're, we've instinctively fallen into calling it Heaven. Yeah. In the opening play, it's the, 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 a voiceover says, um, uh, this is a film about two worlds, yes. one here and now, and the other one entirely in the head of an airman who's been injured. So on the one hand, it can be Heaven, Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, I, I watched it again just, just a few days ago to remind myself about it. And I was thinking, well, well, Jesus does get one mention, but so does Plato and Aristotle. Yeah. And they... it's not written by a Christian. It's written by uh, a secular Jewish writer. I think it is more kind of spiritual than it is a ghost movie or something that would perhaps be a bit more frivolous. Oh, definitely. Um, but at the same token, all of the heavenliness has got a neurological explanation and yeah. it might actually be down to a head injury. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me and it's been lovely to speak to you. Phil, that was Dr. Andrew Moore. What did you think? I just don't know where you keep getting these guests from, but I'll tell you what, <laughs> they get better every time. Like he's it, Again, like, <clears throat> like you said, wrote the book on... On the Powell Ro and Pressburg, yeah. literally. <laughs> so, you know, he's obviously going to know a thing or two. Andrew Moore is the, a professor of film at, at MMU. He was also a professor of film at Bangor University when I was there. Ah. 
It all comes back to Bangor. <laughs> it all comes every back to time. <laughs> Honestly, booking the guests for this show is the most stressful part of my job here. <laughs> so look, guys, if you want to come talk about a film, you just let me know and we'll probably let you do it. <laughs> do you know what? Like the, the one thing he said about everybody would uh, would expect heaven to be in colour and, and uh, the world to be black and white. That's like, yeah, that's probably how I would have done it as well. <laughs> yeah, and I, heaven being in black and white is... After watching that film, I just totally get it now. Mm. I totally get it visually. It just it, it reads like a otherworldly, heavenly sort of like not like anything we're aware of. Yeah, almost like a very benign retirement community. That's the sense that you got there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, yeah, I know exactly. What there you was mean, no, yeah. there was no conflict, but also at the same time, there was no falling in love. There was no kind of vibrancy that, and that's what it's the Technicolor all, brings to you. It's very mm. much to the point, and these are the rules. And yeah. the, we have an order and a way of doing things here. The choice of colour schemes is almost like the opposite of Wizard of Oz, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And now it's time for... <gasps> Finding the Faith in the Film! Ba, 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 ba. The first thing I wanted to talk about was angels. In one of the first scenes we see in uh, in the afterlife, we see angels' wings being given to the airmen as they enter. And the thing I love so much about them was they're in little plastic wrapping. You yeah. know? I like the fact it's just like, if, if, if one is defective, do not worry. We will get you a replacement in three to five working days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Phil, just right off the top of your head, what do you think an angel looks like? Big white wings. I don't know why, but long hair, white robes, mm-hmm. white everything, pretty much. So that's how we commonly think of them but there's no real biblical evidence to back up that depiction the word angel comes to us from old english and old french which is derived from the late latin word angelus Mm. meaning messenger so the idea of angels being people who have wings is sort of right and sort of not the earliest known depiction i believe of an angel as a person with wings is on the prince's sarcophagus which is attributed to the time of Theodosius, so that's around 379, 395 AD. Uh, And it was discovered um, near Istanbul in the 1930s. Okay, so there was a early church leader, again, around the sort of 300 AD to 400 AD era, called, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, St. John Chrysostom. Your guess is as good as mine on that one, mate. A weird, (laughs) weird name. He was trying to suggest the idea, talking about the significance of the angel's wings, that they were just like a a representation of their divine nature. This is why Gabriel is, is represented with the wings. Not that angels have wings, but you know that they lead the heights and the most elevated dwelling to approach human nature. Right. Now, the way I try to think of this is like people being depicted as having halos. You know, we know Jesus didn't walk around with this little golden ring just floating above <laughs> his head. You know? A bit like in Sonic or something like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> like, can you imagine? You know, you meet you meet Mary. She's a little girl. Nice. Easy to talk to. Glowing ring around <laughs> her head. You'd just be there like, you know, I, I, and I've really enjoyed talking to you today, Mary. <laughs> and, um, but I've just got to ask. I've got to ask. What the hell is that light above your head? <laughs> <laughs> You've got a little something just, yeah, 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 just oh, there, oh, you know? Oh, oh. What, she just takes it off like, oh, this? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, that's 
That's that's my sign of divinity. I mean, wouldn't you just be tempted to just stick a padlock on it? Or just like carabiner clip or something like that. Just hang, play buckaroo with it or something like that. You know, it'd be good that. <laughs> I've never thought of that, actually. Is it a physical thing or not? You know, like, I've, that's never something that really came across my mind. <laughs> so, that said, possibly the wings are the only thing people are getting right about angels. One of my favourite Bible passages is uh, Isaiah 6. And it goes like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, with the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temples filled with smoke. So... We've got angels now that not only have one pair of wings, they've got three. I mean, come there's, on, man. Like, how many do you need? <laughs> they're flying blind because you can't look upon the glory of God directly without sort of bursting into flames. They're also covering their feet as well. And then there's one pair flapping whilst they're sort of reciting this over and over. You know? If anything, that just sounds logistically difficult. It you does sound I mean? logistically <laughs> difficult. You're absolutely right there. Like, in, terms you know? of, in terms of the laws of aerodynamics, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I'm not entirely sure how how much airtime you can really get. <laughs> These kind of angels were called seraphim. And I don't know if you've heard of a thing, a thing on YouTube called The Bible Project. You should definitely check it out because it's, again, this really nice conversational tone. They're beautifully illustrated and also really intelligent stuff they've got to say. I'd, I'd, I'd give it a check out if I were you. Okay. But they refer to the seraphim as God's senior leadership team. <laughs> you know, they're the ones that kind of, <laughs> that sort well, of like, minister from serving is, directly. Is... His ops managers. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. And then, have you ever heard of cherubs? Yes, yeah, the so, little baby-looking yeah. things with wings. And they're sort of going around shooting arrows at people like Cupid and, and like all that Cupid, sort of stuff. Yeah, 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 that's who I thought of eventually. So cherubim are these really scary-ass winged beings that are like a mixture of lions and goats and all manner of other other stuff. This this massive sort of mixture of animals kind of thrown together. They sound like the bloody chimera. They do. You know, they you do. know from, from yeah. the, I think that's from Greek mythology, right? It sounds yeah. like chimera. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're first referenced in Genesis 3.24, so right at the start. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So these cherubim, you do not mess with these guys at all. They they, they sound like the the bouncers of heaven. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, have you got ID, mate? (laughs) (laughs) I can just imagine it now. I'll be scared. So an interesting thing is St. Augustine. Have you ever heard of him? I have, actually. I'm just not entirely sure what his significance is, apart from being a saint. Yeah, (laughs) so he's he's around a, I want to say, 4th century sort of Christian. Christian thinker and he has this idea he thinks that angel isn't so much the nature of the being as it is their occupation yeah. so he thinks that they're effectively spirits they're not human they're not they god they don't they're not... strictly have corporeal form in the way yeah. 
yeah. he would yeah, sort yeah. of perceive it. Effectively, he's saying that angel is a job title, and it really just kind of means messenger in this context, because yeah. that's why we see Gabriel appearing to Mary as a, as a messenger and all this sort of thing. We, we talked about this, I think, a little bit in Dogma, the idea that these angels, they're the servants of God, and human beings are the children of God. Human beings get forgiven everything. Angels don't get the same access to forgiveness. They don't get the same access to grace. Do you know what I mean? You know, you, you know what that immediately made me think of? The customer is always right. <laughs> <laughs> like, the customer, they, they're like, you know, sort of like the people on Earth who are just being, they're, they're the human beings. They're being forgiven for all their sins. But woe betide you if you're a waiter and you've dropped a beer or something like that. You are on the chopping block, son. That's what, I, don't, I don't know why it made me think of that, but it's, an, it's a similar dynamic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, I'd go so far as to say you would probably forgive your kid just about anything. Yeah. Whereas if it's somebody working for you who keeps screwing up over and over, you're like, okay, this is, I don't think this is working out. You're not a disciplinary, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The short version, if you have, if you only take one thing away from this, I want you to know that we don't believe that humans can become angels. They're a completely separate thing. You angels me? are just sort of like a, an entity upon, unto themselves that take the take the visual form of humans just to make it easier to deliver messages. Yeah. I have a thing I wanted to mention as well. I was thinking Go about on. just coming back to the wings aspect. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if the wings sort of depict the fact that angels can go to and from heaven as they please. They sort of have this access yeah. almost and it's represented by the wings do you, do, would you say that was sort of on the right that, lines or? that's what I think is going on here that it, it's a way for an artist to just say they can this, ascend and descend as much as they, can, as much as they want yeah this kind of this isn't just a normal guy you know this is yeah. This is somebody who's a bit different. The other thing I wanted to talk about was there's a bit where they talk about clerks kind of working in heaven. That I think I remember the scene. It's right at the start where they're, they're talking about them watching and taking notes and, and all the rest of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they look down from the big, yeah. all those big holes that they've got and all the waiting rooms. Yeah. What did you think about this idea that you go to heaven and you get given a job. I guess it sort of works into the idea of being in servitude to God. Because yeah. if you if you sort of like a, if you're in servitude to God in your in your sort of like your earthly time, then it would make sense and I guess only be fair since you devoted all that time anyway. You probably want to sort of like continue being in servitude to God. But yeah. I imagine I imagine it wouldn't be quite as taxing as earthly earthly sort of endeavors or desires. Yeah, so this is, again, we're entering into the area of Giles' Christian headcanon. We should get that on a placard or something, (laughs) (laughs) on like a (laughs) t-shirt. So, for example, I don't believe when I get to heaven that I will always stay as I am now. First of all, there's the idea that anything that's not of God in you get sort of like washed away. And the yeah. only bits of you that survive are the, the, the bits that, that love God, if that makes sense. So I don't believe that we, we stay as humans in the traditional sense, for want of a better phrase. But I also think you, if you're there for that period of time, you'd have to change and evolve in, in some way. I almost imagine the idea of, of having a job, of having something to do as being a way of helping people cope with the, the transition. Do you know I what think, I mean? Yeah, that makes sense because you spend most of your life working anyway. It's yeah. the most normal thing in the world to most people to go to work and have a job or have a purpose or a role. You'd just get bored. Yeah. If it's all I, sort of sitting around. I, I tell you what, mate, if they had a PS4 up there, you know what I mean? I'd be all right. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody... Presumably they'd have every game as well. So <laughs> I remember working in retail where they were trying to get people to sign up to this or loyalty card yeah. with like 39.9% APR, you know, 
know, ridiculously high sort of thing. And you, you came out of it thinking, I just want to have a job where the world is better at the end of the day because of what I did rather than it being worse in some way, shape or form. Yeah, no, I completely feel that actually. I really do. But yeah, that, that sort of thing of having having something that, that supports your needs, that you love doing and that has a value to it. That to me does sound like a decent depiction of heaven. Yeah, actually, because a lot of people think of heaven as like this sort of paradise with mm. beaches and oceans and trees and beautiful things and things beyond your wildest dreams. And to be honest, currently what would be beyond my wildest dreams is a fair world. Yeah. Exactly. So and that would be brilliant. You know what I mean? Exactly. Where you just sort of like say for example you do something and you get a positive and equal outcome from it and yeah. that's just fine. You know what yeah. I mean? That's that's all it needs to be. Absolutely. The last one I have is a, is a bit of a toughie. I've got a question for you, and I don't necessarily want you to answer it out loud, okay? Are you ready? Uh, well, I, I just won't answer it out loud, you just and I'll let you know it. when I have an answer in my head. Because <laughs> there, there's a few, there's some other questions lined up after it that, okay. you, that I do with. So the first question is, who would you die for? Is there a short list? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah. You, you don't need to tell me who, but do you have that list in your head yes you could picture the faces can't you yes yeah? okay now i've got another question which you can answer did that list of people change when you met your wife yes uh, did it change when you found out you were going to become a dad absolutely now <laughs> now here's the question i have for you did that list get longer or shorter uh, i'd say it got a little longer okay right a little okay. longer this is one of those areas where we prove that you are just a better person than me okay <laughs> <laughs> because for me the list got shorter before the idea that you could sacrifice yourself there's 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 so many people in this life that i i love that have made a positive impact to me that that matter to me so much and yet if i died that would mean i'd have to leave Claire alone and then you, you're stuck with the either she's she's left with decades of grieving or even worse she moves on and I find that terrible as well you know? yeah no to be, be fair that's that's hard enough when you have a breakup exactly <laughs> you know, I mean? you know? So. the idea that Riley grows up without a dad again I can't and don't want to countenance that idea but then what if you if you ask me if I would sacrifice myself for them I'd say yes definitely obviously what are you talking about you know yeah, because just there's no question about there's it. Is no there? que there's no question about it whatsoever. No, <laughs> like the weird thing about marriage is the success parameters are determined by you die before you break up. Yeah, you're just there. Like if you are already, or you are still together by the time you've perished. Then yeah. Good job, well done. Exactly. <laughs> just... So for me, that list of, of people that I love more than anything in the, else in the world and would gladly sacrifice myself for contracted significantly. And I think when it comes to this idea of sacrifice, that's the criteria. You're not just sort of dying to save the world or to save mankind or anything. It's because there's one person there that you can't countenance anything bad happening to. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do completely understand that. Like for me, it's... It's, it's the sense of, for example, if Elise, my wife, if there was going to be any point where it was either me or her, I'd throw myself in the way 
straight away because yeah. there's just there's no part of my story from now on where she's not in it and yeah. I'm happy. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like that's just that's just not how it works. And, mm. and and furthermore for my for my child who will be here very soon as well. Like yeah. if there was a a part of the story where again, if there was a part of the story where my child wasn't there and me and Elise were still here, I wouldn't be happy. Yeah. I'd be surviving. Lin Manuel Miranda calls it going through the unimaginable, doesn't he? You know? Yeah. Succinct and absolutely on point yeah now if we look at the love story between peter and june the the two main lovers in it okay first of all yes it's a narrative conceit that these two people sort of talk on the radio and they fall in love with each other and yes it's a coincidence that they meet up with each other after he sort of bailed out of his plane it's very hollywood Let's it is it, well, well, it's it's it, well, maybe not Hollywood, but it's, okay. it's very well. It's let ha- me let me let me put it this way, okay? Yeah, it's the 1940s. It's the early 1940s, and you don't know if you're going to survive till tomorrow. You don't strictly know whether you're going to survive the next hour. So true. People tended to get together pretty quickly and fall in love pretty quickly. I believe the sort of rate of um, of births outside of marriage is like twelve twice as high in the 1940s than it is in the 1960s. So there was a lot of people falling in love very quickly and not, you know, not waiting around to sort of weigh up their options. I can believe that the two people who have an attraction to each other, if you then mix that in with a life and death situation, how it can enhance those feelings pretty quickly. Okay, yeah. With that context, that makes a lot more sense because at the, at the start, I was like, bloody hell, that's quick. Also, Tinder doesn't exist. So <laughs> your options are what you you can see in front of you. <laughs> can you can, can you imagine people in the forties with a smartphone? They'd think it was they'd think it was witchcraft. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a conceit that the two of them fall in love, but we'll go along with it because it works for the story. You know, because it's the point of the story. The interesting thing I, I talked about is like, how can you prove you're in love? You've only just met. It's like, well, yeah, that's that's true. That's that's a legitimate thing, but you can only prove you loved someone sincerely after your life together you can't you can't prove it at the start it's one of those things it's a proof that takes a lifetime until the end of things like it it doesn't really it's such a hard thing to ask someone there's there's that bit where where the the prosecutor says to peter he says uh would you die for her well yes but uh I'd rather live for her. Yeah, and, I like that. I like that. And when the question is asked to June, would you go in his place? She's like, yeah, okay, all right, sign me up. And she she sort of <laughs> she is on that escalator like no messing around. She you just know? jumps on that escalator, just like you take take me to the pearly gates, son, because exactly. this guy's gonna live. You know what I mean? Exactly. And that's what love looks like. You know? Yeah. That's what love and sacrifice looks like. And and that to me, oh, we've talked about this in the past, but that's what I. Imagine Jesus was like yeah. when when you realise that humanity is in trouble. I, I can imagine God the Father saying, "Well, it looks like we'll need someone to sacrifice me." You know, <laughs> Jesus is Love there. He is. He would be jumping on that escalator, going down to heaven. He's fast, like, don't, fast don't worry, you, I'm here, Dad. <laughs> yeah, faster than you could say. Are you sure this is a good idea? And it's not because he's the savior of mankind. It's not because he's the savior of the world. It's because he's the savior of Giles. It's because he's the savior of Phil. You know? Yeah. He's, he thought he's... he thought you and me were worth it just for that alone. Do you know what I mean? And it's and it, yeah, I like that. I like that. And that's the thing that people don't 
forget at times and that's the it's the the personal nature of salvation rather than oh well i was just doing it for everybody because i had to save <laughs> mankind you know yeah, i don't like the fact it's like well i mean i were in the area and i yeah. thought well you know what sod it i'll just do it like yeah you know. <laughs> yeah because... another, another stint from northern jesus there yeah yeah northern jesus we're happy to have him back you know <laughs> so that concludes our finding the faith in the film section uh next week we're going to be looking at marvel's thor oh Ooh. Ooh. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's that got. As you can maybe tell from my extremely strange accent, there, I was uh, pretty pleased about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Phil, have you had a good time? I always have fun doing these podcasts, as you know. I have so much fun with these. And in that case, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh, and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Waffle editing by Natalie Austin and fact-checking by Christina Stanard-Good. Guardian Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one-star, in which case, send in your review by taking up running. Download a running app that will track your routes. Pick a wide enough open space to run, and with the line of your route tracking you on the running app, run in a pattern that says, Here Phil, I want a word. Make sure to wear a pair of trainers to support your arches, don't forget to hydrate, and don't run into a field full of cows without knowing how you're going to get out, because you will end up getting a tetanus shot, and trust me, that is not as much fun as it sounds.